Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are continuing our study of the book of 2 Timothy in the New Testament. Today's lesson has a title, Misplaced Affections, and comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Class teacher Doug Brady brings out the need for this kind of study written by the Apostle Paul. We have been looking carefully at the apostasy that is so prevalent in our 21st century churches, and in this lesson, we see it even more prominently. So, get ready for a really great lesson. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall which is located on the lower level of our new Worship Center building. We enjoy meeting those who come to visit our class and find that many of them have joined the class because of the deep and understandable teaching from Doug. We will welcome you if you are in the area. Well, I do see that Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson with a story, so be sure to have your Bible open to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we begin. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. One of the greatest stories of reconciliation that's ever flowed from an English pen uh, was set in a place called Fair Verona. And there were two warring factions. There were the Capulets and the Montagues. And you remember reconciliation is two enemies coming together to be friends or family. And in that story, uh, a young man named Romeo uh, brought about a reconciliation with a young lady named Juliet. Now, it's a famous English love story of reconciliation, but it doesn't compare to the love story of reconciliation of a crown prince leaving his father's home and coming to an alien land to reconcile himself with those who lived there and sacrificing himself for those people who inhabited that alien land, many of which, or all of which were her enemy, his enemies, what was the motivation factor for him carrying out that ministry of reconciliation? Love. Love. The more we love those who need to be reconciled, the more we will participate in the message of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. So what I wanted to do, and I had planned to do last Sunday, was to bring you a little visual reminder. Eddie, would you and Steve, uh, you have a choice, wild cherry or wintergreen. When you get it, do not open it. Now, there has been rumors float around that I intentionally forgot last Sunday so that I could save the wild cherry for myself. 
I am not going to answer those spurious accusations, not because they're true in part, but... And Doug, you can have a friend and take an extra one. Nope, you can't, because they did not hear the ministry of... Now, what is it that you're going to do with these? You're going to hold this lifesaver. You're not going to open and eat it. You are going to wait until you participate in a successful event of reconciliation. Now, we need to define successful. Friday afternoon, I was sitting in my office at the conference table, and we just finished a Zoom hearing. My two clients were sitting there on the opposite side of the table. Now, they were members of our church. And a phone rang. That was the phone in my pocket. And I pulled it out, and I could tell it was one of those phone calls that used to make me very angry. And I decided not to even ask, but I looked at them, and I said, I'm sorry, but I need to take this call. And I answered it, and he said, is this Douglas? I said, yes, it is. Yep, you're right. Yes, it is. And he said, well, would you be interested in selling the property located? And I said, before you ask me that, I have to ask you a question. I said, if you were to die tonight, and you stand before God, and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And there was silence for a second. I thought I was going to hang up because most of them do. And then he said, I think because I pray a lot and I try to do really good things. I said, now I hate to tell you this, but that's an insufficient answer. That won't get you into heaven. Would you like to know how you can be certain? He said, yes. And so right there in front of those clients, I shared with him that, you know, about the love and forgiveness of Christ, about sin and what it is, and what the effect of sin in separating you from God for eternity. And then further, that knowing those three things that, and the fact that Jesus came to pay the penalty of your sin, knowing those is not enough. Until you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you cannot answer that question correctly. And he said, I don't know if I want to be a Christian. And I said, well... You know, that is your decision. And in fact, that's the most important decision you're going to ever make in your life. But let me tell you this. When you're, as you're thinking about it, I want you to know, on the one hand, you can choose to spend eternity with your heavenly Father who created you in a wonderful place, or you can choose to spend eternity away from Him in a place called hell, which is as terrible a place as you can possibly imagine. I said, it doesn't take me too long to think through that decision. And he said, yes, but I'm still going to think about it. And I said, all right, you have my number. Call me back at any time. Now, here's the question. Was that a successful portion of the ministry of reconciliation? Yes. Because success is sharing the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. Now, you have to hold on to that lifesaver until you participate in the ministry of reconciliation. Then you're allowed to consume it. No cheating. This is the honor system. But I have a very strong and powerful security guard who is watching you all the time to make certain you don't cheat.
What did your clients, did they? That's a very good question. Chris, I, I looked at him. I said, I hope that didn't bother you. No, we loved it. So, and, and just so that you know, and there's no question, I haven't got a call yet. I'm taking cherry, but I will not consume it. Oh, I'll put that one back. <laughs> it was cracked. All right. Now, that's the first thing, and that finishes our, that one-time series on Ministry of Reconciliation. The time before that, we studied the signs of the latter days. How will we know about the latter days? Now, I want you to think about this a second, and it's important. What does Paul compare uh, his life to as a Christian uh, at the end of uh, second, second Timothy? A race. A race. A race. I have fought a good fight. I've, I've kept the faith. I have raced, and I have won. Now, a while back, several members of the class invited my two sons, Brooks and Barrett, to run in the midnight race over in Fort Worth. And I was a little concerned about it. First, they said, we will run with, each of us will split up, and each of us will run with one. Well, I knew Brooks was going to be okay. But I was worried about Barrett and Barrett making it. But they were going along and they got to a certain point in the race and Barrett said to the guy running with him, I can't go any farther, I'm going to quit. And I had warned him. And the guy said, I tell you what, you can quit, but let's just make it to the end of this block and turn around the other block and then we'll, you can quit. Barrett said, okay. And they ran down to the end of that block and, and around it. And as they rounded that block, six to eight blocks down was the finish line. <laughs> Barrett could now see the finish line. And so he ran the rest of the day because he could make it six to eight blocks. Why do you think God wants to give us signs of the latter days so we can see the finish line? We talked about Ten signs, right? Let's put those ten signs up there. These were the ten signs of the latter times. Apostasy taking hold of the church, the end of morality, integrity, and character in the world, widespread lawlessness throughout the world, a prevailing presence of scoffers and mockers, the makings of a world government coming into view, the return of the Jewish people to the promised land, the Jewish people's ability to rapidly rebuild their temple, the coalition of Russia, Turkey, and Iran, the emergence of, of Sheba and Dedan, and the final one, emergence of a movement to promote a one-world religion. Now, did we get to explain number 10? No. We need to. That's what we're going to do, and I want you to see some things as we do that and what, what is involved here in this preparation. The one world religion that's coming is spoken of in Revelation chapter 17, starting in verses, or verses 1 and 2, when it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality 
and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of immorality. Now, you notice, I want you to notice this word translated harlot. Do you see that? The great harlot. The King James doesn't use the word harlot. What does it use? Doesn't use prostitute. Whore. Whore. What's the difference between harlot and whore? Harlot is a little more genteel. Whore is much more raw. And I favor in this situation the King James translation. Because if you knew anything about this, she's pictured as a female, but she is wicked to the core. And she is raw. It says that she will be drunk as she's writing. And what is it that she's drunk on? The blood of the saints. And you say, well, we don't drink blood anymore. <coughs> oh, yeah? I'm not going to say anymore. I'll get in. Why would God choose to use that word, whore or harlot or prostitute, in telling this and speaking of the one world church? Now, the waters, you notice, on which she sits... Those are the people of the world who worship at her feet, those waters, many waters, many waters, who sits on the many waters. Now, those are the people who are worshiping. Now, you say, how do you know that? There's no way to tell. Well, it's really very simple. You just look down in verse 15 in that chapter, and it explains it to you, just like when we get to the kings of the earth, when you get down to the kings of the earth, those are, are the ones that rule. There's 10 of them. They match the 10 toes in Daniel chapter uh, 7. And those are the ones who are right under the beast, ruling under him and exercising his authority and his power. This is, you notice, this final church is part religious, part political. And just like churches used to be, say, in the time of Constantine. And the question, though, is, yeah, that's coming, but is there any evidence that it is coming or that it's near? That's the question. Is there any evidence to show that this is something, a one-world-type religion, that is coming? I want you to think back to the 1950s. Now, some of you can't do that because you weren't born there, but I think most of us were there was something called the ecumenical movement. And it had a, as its agenda a joining of all the churches together. They established something called the World Council of Churches. And that World Council of Churches was something that was designed for a one-world church. In fact, what they decided to do is we need a Bible that will support us. So they did their own translation. It's called the Revised Standard Version. And if you have a revised standard of version in your possession, in your home, go and read it for truth. Now, if you need to see what the enemy is trying to say, then it's okay to read it for that purpose. But don't read it for truth. There are now, though, we are seeing from the 50s, that was gentle compared to what we're seeing today. Let me give you some examples of what we are seeing. We are seeing... Efforts underway to bring together the two strongest religious groups in the world. The Holy Roman Catholic Church 
and any other quote-unquote uh, Christian group which will join with her together in a partnership with Islam, that is the Muslim religion. This partnership is going to be called uh, Chrislam. Now, some idiot one time told me, well, you got to see, Christians are carrying the load, though. Or they're the, the more important group because, you see, it has almost the entire part of Christ there, C-H-R-I-S. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, but it has the whole name of Islam there. What are you talking about? But let me tell you about these guys. Uh, there's going to be, in that partnership, the Bible and the Koran will be considered equal in authority. Praying to Allah or to God are all the same. Moses, Muhammad, and Jesus are all considered prophets of the one true God with equal standing. And one of the leading proponents of Chrislam is Rick Warren. Now, you can get on the Internet and there'll be all kinds of, let's say, miscreants who will say, oh, no, he's being misquoted. I heard him at the inauguration of Barack Hussein Obama pray to Allah in the name of Isa. Don't tell me that. You're lying. But that's what they do. And so we need to be prepared for, for that kind of thing and see that. But it's not the only move. Have you heard of the UN? Have you heard of the UR? United Religions. It is a group that's now forming. And it is the most apostate of dogmas around today. It teaches that God is revealed differently in different cultures. But it's all the same God, and so you bring all of these cultures together and unite them because that is what God wants. There are many different paths to God. Allah, Yahweh, Krishna, they're all the same. But the outgrowth of the union is the idea that missionary activity should be condemned as arrogant and anti-cultural. And there are now organizations that, that band together into this you are, and they believe that they should denounce Christians who believe in the Bible and creationism as authoritative, dictatorial, violent, aggressive, pathological. That is, do you know what pathological means? The cause of disease. Pathological and dangerous. The you are not only represents major religions of the world, but they even count as their members Druids. Celtic revivalists, Wicca and witchcraft participants, and Norse paganism, Odin. And it promotes an ever-growing trend towards syncretism. That is the belief that all is one. This is a sign that we have to see. These groups continue to preach tolerance, but it's perverted tolerance. And as soon as they get the tolerance they need, they will start to take over. And as these groups unite, it is for the benefit of unity and results in the loss of the sound doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, how do you know that? How do I know that they really want us to shed doctrines that are important pillars of the Christian faith for the sake of unity? Well, let me introduce you to a man. Well, that's Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson. He was the one who wrote the message. 
I probably now, after my research, would be go so far that if I was in a church service where I heard the minister say, I'm going to read to you from the message with the point of view that it's not, with, with the point of view this is not a negative statement about this is a positive statement. I think it will help you understand the Bible. I'm going to read to you the message. Julie and I are getting up and walking out. Why would I say that about the message? Well, let's talk about Peterson just a second. This is not a translation. It's not really a paraphrase. It's a statement of the author's philosophy. Listen to some of the claims that he has made. First one, I get to show you where he is. I wouldn't have said this 20 years ago. Eugene Peterson said, but now I know a lot of people who are gay and lesbian, and they seem to have as good a spiritual life as I do, Peterson said. Now, at first I thought, you know, that is just so false, and then I started thinking about it. Oh, no, that's probably true. Uh, they have as good a spiritual life as Eugene Peterson has. Now, let's look at the next thing he said. There is a sense in which the scriptures are the word of God dehydrated, with all the originating context removed, living voices, city sounds, camels carrying spices from Sheba and gold from Ophir, snoring down the bazaar, fragrance uh, from lentil stew simmering in the kitchen, all reduced to marks on thin onion skin paper. Now let's go back and look at it just a second. I want you to look at that word up at the top, dehydrated. The scriptures are the word of God dehydrated. What does that mean? Taking all the life out of. Do you see what's going on here? Uh, The next thing I want you to see, with all the originating context removed, the Bible has all the context in it that it needs. There is nothing that has been removed. I don't need to smell lentil soup to know what the Bible says. Finally, all reduced to marks on onions... Skin paper. This is not the living word of God. It's just ink on paper. That's what he is saying. David. That's what he's he's telling you what they're trying to do. That's what they're pushing. And you need to see that. My Bible is not dehydrated. It is alive. It is sharper than a two-headed sword and it two-edged sword and it is active. And we need to see that. Now, I want you to see. The passage that we studied, 2 Corinthians 5.20, this is what it says. God uses us to persuade men and women to receive Jesus as his Savior. Oh, no, wait, it doesn't say that. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. What are those differences they're dropping? Spelled D-O-C-T-R-I-N-E-S. Doctrines. That's what, it's, that's what that means. That's not what God says. Never does God want unity at the sake of truth. If truth divides us, so be it. God is the one who establishes truth. Julie. To clarify that they added that phrase. Well, that's his philosophy of verse 20. There's no Greek to show that. That's just his philosophy. That is not what the Bible says. If you look at this passage in 20, it talks about us being ambassadors for Christ. To bring people to the reconciliation. 
and he completely, talk about not having the context, he completely misses the context of the whole passage. Now, with this final sign of the latter days, let's go back to the race. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them open, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. So we go back. Now, Mark wasn't here today, and I forgot to pray. He usually reminds me very surreptitiously, but Father, I pray that what I've said is exactly what you wanted me to say, and I pray that what I'm going to say is exactly what you want me to say. Please have the Holy Spirit direct me and control me, and I pray, Father, that we will come to understand as much as we can get through. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, just so you have a feeling for where we are, this is where the lesson starts right now, as it was intended. Now, as we re-enter an exegesis of 2 Timothy, uh, we're going to find that the subject of apostasy will be discussed at length and dealing with the specific details, starting in chapter 1 and going through chapter 8, verse 8. So the first part here, 1 through 9, will describe the apostasy that is coming and this will be describing it not on a church-wide level, but an individual level. We'll talk about individual attributes. And then, in the second part of it, from 3.10 to 4.8, he's going to provide us with the antidote to the coming apostasy. How to keep your church free of apostasy, if at all possible, what we have to do. Now, this apostasy movement, of course, started small, but it has been growing and we will find that more than likely it will reach our, its zenith in our lifetimes. It is going to be it. We're going to see it. It will be there. So looking first at this verse, 1 Timothy, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. There's th four th key things I want you to see in this preparatory verse that he has. Realize this. He's saying, you need to understand what's going on. Understanding is what he's trying to say. You need understanding. When do, what do we need an understanding about? The last days. The last days of what? The church age. Not the last days of the world, but the last days of the church age. If you look in 1 Timothy 4.1, it says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away. That is apostasy. Some of whom? Some of the world? No, some of the church. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In 2 Timothy 3, 5, it's going to say, holding to a form of godliness. That is religion. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, but evil men and imposters will recede from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now look at the next word in this verse here that I want you to see. It's the word difficult. Yeah, difficult and perilous. I want you to see that. Difficult and perilous. And in difficult and perilous, this is the translation of one Greek word. I put the two key meanings here. It's difficult, meaning it's hard, it's exhausting, but it's also perilous. That's the translation in the King James. But what we should come to understand this word perilous to mean as dangerous, harsh, fierce, savage. 
And we're going to see that because one of the attributes of these people who are participating in this apostasy in the church is going to be brutality. Well, brutality in the church? Absolutely. It's coming. And I want you to see it. Now, finally, this word will come. Will come. Will come means, I wonder, it sounds like, well, it's coming. What the best translation, I think, in this context of this word, if you look at it, is close at hand. Difficult times are close at hand. They're here. We're seeing them. That's why I showed you those signs. We need to be prepared. We're going to be in a fight, and we need to understand that. Now, what is it going to say about these people? And I want you to see that because this is a very, very important to understand. We need to understand that evil's coming, and it'll seriously infect the church, seeking to destroy her. And when those days come, it will turn men into animals. Now, I don't mean genetically. I mean morally and ethically. Does the lioness have any moral concerns about running down that antelope, killing her and eating her? How about the mother, Cheetah, who catches a fawn impala and brings it alive back to her cubs and lets them practice chasing it and knocking its feet out from under and capturing it over and over. It seems rather callous, does it? It seems rather brutal, does it? Animals don't have any sense of morality or ethics. Members, we're not talking about the world now. We're talking, the church will not in the midst of this apostasy. In the same way, you can see that. Now, I want you to see something because it's going to be describing it in this passage, starting in verse 2. In Romans 1.18, which is what we studied a while back, we saw that was what was going to happen to the world. And now what God is saying, we are about to see it in the church. Now, I want to stop here just a second, and I want you to think about something. I'm saying that things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And I am convinced that's what the Bible says. What about a teacher or pastor who says, oh no, the church is going to bring in the kingdom of God. Things are going to get better and better and better until finally they're so good that Jesus says, I'm coming back. What is he doing, Don? He is lying. He is lying to you and lying to his sheep, and he doesn't care about... Now, you will hear it a little more subtly. You will hear someone say, we need to be about the kingdom's work. Are we supposed to be about the kingdom's work? No. The kingdom is... Well, I'm going to tell you something, Don. You need to understand this very carefully. Can you be about the kingdom's work right now? And the answer is yes, you can. Which kingdom are we talking about, though? What you're talking about is the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of Satan and the Antichrist. We cannot bring in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There is only one person who's going to bring that kingdom in. And who is that? And that's when he comes back. What condition will the world be in when he comes back? Will it be good? No, it'll be extremely wicked. 
extremely wicked. And that's what we have to see. Question. The pastors that, that preach this, this deceit, do they knowingly do it or are they controlled by sight? I mean, it could be intentional. It could be because they're uneducated. It could be because they're confused. Or it could be they just want to be popular. And so you need to understand. It could be one of those things. But do you want your leader to be intentionally wrong, uneducated, confused? We've got that now. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. But let me tell you, if you're in a church and the one speaking to you was Rick Warren, that's what you would hear. If you were in a church and the one speaking to you was Bill Hybels up in Willow Creek near Chicago, that is what you hear. And yet, are those churches mega churches? Saddleback and Willow Creek are. We're going to talk about that more in a second. We need to understand that there is a kingdom coming, and the one who's going to be the ruler of it is the man of lawlessness, and the one world church will be the galvanizer of that kingdom. And we need to not say, in fact, Candace, in the lesson notes you will see, I say three reasons. I gave you four because if I thought about it, I think that fourth one is involved. Now, you remember that when we were talking about apostasy in general, we just spoke about what would happen. I intentionally skipped over a portion of one verse in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Know first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, when I read it to you last time, I read it just like that, skipping very fast over a few words. But I want to slow down this time and look at those few words. Following after their own lusts. That's the key provision in the apostate designations you're going to find in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, look over there at that passage. I'm going to read it to you. It says, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. Notice, ministry of reconciliation, they will be irreconcilable. Malicious, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, Don, I want to tell you, this question is not for you. It is way above your pay grade. Intercalation. Intercalation. Don, you know what an intercalation is? It's a reference to the church age. It's a tie, it's a like parentheses. It's coined by a big Schaefer, Lewis Perry Schaefer coined it. It's not ex not and it came before Lewis Perry Schaefer tended to make it kind of popular. But it's it is a grammatical device. It is a scientific explanation. It is even sometimes used in a general story. It's used a lot, in six times at least, in the Gospel of Mark. I had never known what this was before I started studying this lesson. Ah, now you're getting very close. Let's look at it here real quick. The terms 
mean to insert or position between or among existing elements or layers. That's the technical definition. Another way of seeing it is it can be used in a grammatical context, a scientific sense, or a general narrative device. Here's the way I think you could remember it and understand it the best. It's a sandwich. You see, it has two pieces of bread and then the filling and the condiments in between. But the two pieces of bread, unlike a sandwich, are the most important. Those are the things, what start and what end. They put the other things in between in a grammatical setting, an intercalation. You were pretty darn close. I wouldn't have gotten that. And stay off the table, Frank. So let's look at this. This, this passage we've read here is one sentence, and the start of it is this. Uh, and I want you to see, this is all about misplaced affections. Misplaced affections. We start this way. For men will be lovers of self. Now, what this passage here is for to show you, lovers of self, lovers of money is the top half of the sandwich. The bottom half is lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the intercalation. Now, let's focus on just that one, lovers of self. That's what will happen in the church in the apostasy times, lovers of self. What is the psychological term for that? Narcissism. Narcissism is characterized by an excessive interest in or admiration of one's self. It involves a preoccupation with oneself. What are the religious repercussions of lovers of self or narcissism? Humanism. Humanism. Humanism is the result of narcissism or self-love, and it's characterized by the idea that man is the center of all things. Humanists believe that God is either non-existent, or if he does exist, he's irrelevant in a sort of deist way. Some people have described it, yeah, he, he made the clock, he wound it up, and he set it up to run down as he walked away, never caring about it again. That kind of concept is humanism. And the results of humanism is when God is either removed from the hearts of men and women, or their God consciousness is seared or cauterized, humanism takes over. And as a result, ethics... Morality, justice, virtue, all become situational. That means whatever the man believes is right, that's what he does. What does the scripture say about that? Well, there's a verse that we quote the first part of all the time, and not necessarily the second part. I want you to see specifically the second part of Psalm 14.1. It says, For the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. What is he saying about these fools? Because they're saying there's no God. Why? Because they don't want to be controlled God. Because they're committing abominable deeds and they are corrupt. Let's look at it in the New Testament here. Just a second in Romans 1, 20. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. Same concept in both testaments because of that. Now, 
There are some people who would say that the cause of this kind of lovers of self and rise of humanism because we took religion out of the schools. The Supreme Court threw it out one day. It is true that the Supreme Court threw out Christianity one day, but they didn't throw out religion. The schools are more religious now than they've ever been. What is that religion? Humanism. Yes. It is strong and prevalent. If you want to know what humanism is, well, you can look at various booklets, the Humanist Manifestos of 1933 and 1973, and then the Humanist uh, Composium in 2000. And they, you, you read these, these booklets or these statements, and they look like doctrinal statements of a church. We believe this, we, this, this, this. Now, what is the ultimate goal of humanism? One world government. That's what they want. Now you say humanism is not a religion, Doug. It may be a philosophy or a way of thought, but it's not a human. You look at the application of the humanist society that was made to the IRS for 501c3 status, and they were granted that status as a religious group. Oh, yes, very much it is. It's one of Satan's religions. You know, Satan has a number of denominations, and that's one of them. And pretty soon the church becomes just like the world and loses all its moral authority to speak to the world or to object to what's happening because of this apostasy and being lovers of self. Now the next one, lovers of money. What is the religion that comes from lovers of money? Materialism. And believe me, that is a religion to many people. It is a tendency to consider material possessions and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. Let me ask you something. Have you ever heard of something called the prosperity gospel? Yes. You know, it's on so-called Christian television. Have you ever heard of any groups who believe in the prosperity gospel outside the borders of the United States? Not too many. You know why? Because there's no prosperity out there. Do you think the people in Mexico and Guatemala and all those places believe in prosperity gospel? No, they don't. They still, they still export it like to Africa and all that. They, they, try. they try. And only in places where there is a booming economy. Because you have to have a booming economy in order for that to work. And the results are the church will change its thinking based upon the draw of materialism. Now, we need to see this, because this is very important, ladies and gentlemen. This new gospel claims that if you are a true believer, then you're a child of the king, and you are entitled to life of health and wealth and prosperity and pleasure. And is there anything that the Apostle Paul said about this teaching? Well, let's look. In Philippians 4.11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. So he's saying, well, I'm a child of the king. I deserve all this wealth. No. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Let's go on a little further. 1 Timothy chapter 3. An overseer then must be above reproach. Now, who is an overseer in our way of talking? 
No, it's the pastor, an overseer, an elder, a bishop. You could translate this word, anything like that. But in the Baptist church, the overseer is the, this, this is giving the requirements of the pastor. You shouldn't pick a pastor who doesn't meet these requirements. Number one, above reproach. And I don't have all of them here. The husband of one wife. Can a, should a pastor be divorced? No. Well, does that mean he's a second-class citizen? No, it just means he can't be a pastor. I had to face that exact same thing. I couldn't be a deacon. Does that mean I'm a second-class? No, I just need to be doing what God wants me to do. And that was teaching and sharing the Word of God. And free from the love of money. The leader of the church has to be free from the love of money. The love of money is what he's talking about here. And this is what's bringing in apostasy. And if we have that love of money, we will be a part of that apostate movement. Now, he's going to, because this is so important, he talks about it again two chapters, three chapters later in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6.10, says, for... I want you to follow this carefully now, and let's make sure I read it right. For money is the root of all sorts of evil. That was wrong? For the, oh, for the love of money. Some people want to say for money. Uh, the Christian can't be rich. Christian should be of humble means. It doesn't say that. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee these things, you man of God. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 6, 24, where he said, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The results are that churches will begin to seek the help of church growth experts and adopting their marketing plans. You see, their plans are really rather straightforward. These guys, they come out and they look, who are the potential demographic customer base of the church? Well, there's these people here that are Christians, or evangelical, or think they're Christians, and there's these people over here that are unbelievers. Well, which group do you target if you want to be successful? The bigger group. That's what you do in marketing. You find out who wants your service and that's who you sell it to or who you want to have your service. And so as this non-believer demographic becomes the target, campaigns are drawn up to draw non-believers into the church. To do that, you have to design a, a campaign that gives them what they want or believe they need. The church dramatically grows and donations arise. Arise. Saddleback Church in Southern California, Willow Creek Church up near outside of Chicago, all are massive churches. They follow this type of marketing plan. Doug, don't we also have a marketing plan? Don't yes. we hire consultants and do campaigns? Yes. I'm going to let you draw your own opinion on that. <laughs> uh, now, you're going to find even stronger here in a second to support your opinion, but what I'm trying to say to you is, is that if we allow, I can remember 
when I was involved in one of these for our church, and I thought, well, certainly the pastor had vetted these people and they know what all they believe. Then I was asked to prepare a series of lessons into, to teach the principles for giving and supporting these plans to expand a building or, or something. And I prepared them and I gave them to the marketing guys to look at because they demanded that they could see them before they would be put into practice. They said, oh, no. You don't bring the original language to the teaching lectern or to the pulpit. You just don't do that. I said, you don't. Just a second. I just happened to have the pastor in those days on, uh, I was a corporate secretary of the church, and I had it on cell phone, and I do you believe, I put it on speaker. I said, I'm here in this uh, committee group meeting, and, we're, and they, I'm being told that we shouldn't bring the original languages into the teaching classroom or have, share them from the pulpit. Do you agree with that? Who said that was his word. And I said, well, here, I'll let you talk to him. And he said, oh, well, pastor, if you want to do that, that's okay. But you need to understand this is what happened. The church grows. Projects are adopted. Funds are borrowed. You know, sometimes pastors are forced by the lender to personally guarantee the debt. So they won't leave partway before the life of the loan is complete. Is there an example of that? I can tell you an example of that. Tony Evans had to personally guarantee Oak Cliff Bible Church's debt in order to build that new sanctuary. In fact, he even told the church that. He said, so you better pay because I'm on the line. Well, you see, now you're in a position where you better not lose all those members because what happens if you start preaching about blood, hell, sanctification, those kinds of things? People don't like that and leave, or they try to communicate to you by lowering their contributions. Well, gee, if you do that, you're in serious trouble. You can't make your debt payment. The debt service is too much for you then. Apostasy sets in because of the love of money. And it builds. It doesn't start immediately. The church becomes man-focused and not God-focused. Now, I want to make sure this is understood. Am I saying that money is evil? No. I'm saying money is just a tool. It's a tool like a hammer or a screwdriver. Now, can you use a, a hammer and a screwdriver to build something very nice? If you've ever seen some of the things that Bill Hall has built, they're, they're amazing. But I can also use a screwdriver or a hammer to kill you. But it's just a tool there's no wrong or right in the tool. It's in the one who uses it. Money is just exactly like that. Uh, the scriptures don't condemn. In fact, look in Matthew 27, verse 57. It says, when it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea. Notice that, a rich man named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate asking for the body of Jesus and then Pilate ordered it be given to him. I want you to look at some of the things that it's saying here. First of all, he's rich. Jesus say, well, you know, he shouldn't have been rich, but, you know, we accepted him anyway. No, he didn't say that. He became a disciple of Jesus. That's right in there with Peter and John and Jesus' brother, James. 
They were dull disciples. Now, notice this next part. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate's order to be given. If Peter had gone, you think Pilate would have given? First of all, Peter wouldn't have gotten an audience with Pilate. But Joseph had stroke, and he used that stroke to go in there and to get that audience and say, give me the body. And Pilate said, yeah, I'll do that for you, Joseph. Do you see? God uses the tool. Now, the next one is at the end, the second layer of the sandwich, and we just don't have time to get into it. I'm sorry. But we will start there next time. So in the meantime, you're going to have to have a sandwich with only one piece of bread. And I apologize for that. But remember the rule of the lifesaver. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could meet together today. I thank you for showing us in the scripture these things. I know that this lesson, Father, was an amalgamation, but I just pray that the people who need to hear whatever it is they need to hear will be able to extract from it what they need and how their needs can be met. And I pray that we can apply it. And there may be things, Father, that we see of apostasy in our church that we need to pray about. Help us to come to you and exercise our most powerful weapon, that of prayer. Father, our nation needs prayer. Our church needs prayer. And our families need prayer. And I pray, Father, that we recognize that prayer is the most powerful weapon, the most energizing weapon, even because as we do it, it tends to energize us. Father, when we pray for revival... Help us to understand it needs to start with us. And we need to be about the ministry of reconciliation. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.